We're going to be over in the book of Genesis, chapter 29. How many were up on Facebook this morning? I saw three people that were. I don't know if anybody else got on after that. If you didn't, you missed the question. If you did, I saw three people have put up the response to that. But we're going to be over in Genesis chapter 29. There was a fellow who walked into a doctor's office in the reception and asked him, as all receptionists do, what do you have? And he said, shingles. So he took down his name, his address, medical insurance number, and told him to have a seat. Fifteen minutes later, a nurse's aide came out and asked him, what do you have? He said, shingles. So he took down his name, his height, his weight, and a complete medical history and told him to wait in the examination room. Half hour later, a nurse came in and asked him what he had. He said, shingles. She gave him a blood test and blood pressure test and an electrocardiogram. Then she told him to take off his clothes and wait for the doctor. An hour later, the doctor came in and asked him what he had. He, had, he said, shingles. The doctor said, where? He said, outside in the truck. Where do you want them? Oh my, it is, it is something when we misunderstand what it is that a person is trying to say. We put up on Facebook here today, what is it that God has given each one of us that he wants us to use in a way that can put him to work for us? Something that he can do to, to bless us. And we've had a couple of responses and none of the responses I saw were wrong. There really is not one answer to this question. There's a few things that God has given us. One person said our life. One person said our gift. Another person said our time. And all those things are really good answers. They're just not the one I was going after today. But all of them could be, uh, are certainly things that God has given us and certainly things that God wants us to do. And there are probably some more answers that you can come up with beside those three and the one we're going to get into today. But here's what we're going to be looking into on this one. There's a, uh, there's a topic, and I knew that when we wind down this series, this is what we were going to be winding it down on, and I alluded to some parts of this, uh, this part of the series uh, as we were going through it. But one of the things that we really don't teach on a whole lot on here on Sunday during the teaching part, because we teach on it every time at the offering, and that is giving. That is tithes and offerings and the different things, what they are and how we're doing them. Do you know that God wants to work through your giving? There's a lot of times that people in the church body just give offerings and don't understand how God is supposed to bless it. They don't understand how it is that they're supposed to give. There's a misunderstanding between tithes, between offerings, between alms and the different things that the Word of God talks about. And sometimes a blessing that is put on one aspect of it, we put on all of the aspects. There is a blessing that is on the tithe that is different from a blessing that is on the offering. There's a blessing that is on the offering that is different than the blessing that is on an alm. And sometimes we get them confused because we don't know what exactly it is that God's talking about. Just like the guy who comes into the doctor's office. They didn't know what he was talking about and they gave explanations and things for, for something that's different. But God has given us very clear explanations of what he wants in the area and uh, this area and uh, brother joe had some great teaching on finances and if you were not there for that it's up on the uh, internet you can get that and i believe he also had some things in the uh, uh, series that uh, some of you folks had picked up but before we get into the nitty-gritty of the tithes and the offering and the alms i want us to look at a story that most of you probably has think has nothing to do with what we're about we're about to get into here but it really does in genesis chapter 29, we're going to read in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for, he, for she said, The Lord has surely looked at my affliction, now therefore my husband will love me. Leah was not the wife who was loved. If you remember the story of, of uh, Jacob, he had gone to work for his father-in-law, who had become his father-in-law. And he really liked Rachel, who was the second oldest. And so he said, work for me seven years and I will give you uh, Rachel. And it, it seems that he, of course, had Rachel before the seven years was, was over. But he uh, either at the beginning or in the middle, somewhere in there, he, he, he was uh, given the permission to marry. Then he was going to work for the rest of the time. So what he did was instead of giving him Rachel, he gave him Leah. And he didn't figure that out till the next morning. And the next morning, he went to his father-in-law and says, what's, what's this? I uh, bargained for Rachel. I got Leah. He says, well, we can't marry the younger one off until we marry the older one. And of course, it would have been nice if he would have said that before. 
But he didn't say that. Of course, he was a deceiver. And he tried to get the different things. So he said, but you can still have, uh, but Rachel, but what you gotta do now is you gotta work for seven years for Leah and seven years for Rachel. So now instead of seven years, he's committed 14 years and he's got two wives instead of one. But he never wanted Leah as a wife. He wanted Rachel. And so he went along with this and so now he has two wives. What's the, what's the word of God say about having two wives? It is not a good situation. This is not what God wants us to, to do. But uh, they had to understand everything that happens in the Word of God is not ordained by God. There's a whole lot of stuff in the Word of God that God says don't do it and people did it and we see what happens when they did it. doesn't mean that you follow their example. It means you learn and don't be stupid. So she's looking to get her the love of her husband and so what she does is she has a son first before Rachel does. She has one and she calls him Reuben. Now in an Oriental society, we are not in an Oriental society, but in an Oriental society, they do have multiple wives. And the first wife has a higher position than any of the wives that would come afterwards. Also, the one who bears the firstborn son is also elevated. So Leah looked at this as, I am the first wife, and we're going to see this come out in her language later on. I am the first wife, and I gave the firstborn son. And she says, my page turned she bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, the Lord has surely looked at my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. <laughs> if I bring him a son, surely now he will love me. Reuben means behold a son or a vision of a son. And so he got his name because mom is trying to win over the love of her husband. How many of you know that is not a great way to name a son? There's a lot of people who pick ways to, to name sons and name daughters, and not all of them are good. How many of you have friends who have picked up ways to name sons and daughters? That's not good. I mean, go through the 60s. I was born in the 60s, and some of the people, the flower children and stuff, you have people coming out of there, you know, with rainbow and uh, moss and uh, uh, just, you know, uh, just words that were not meant to be names. And they come up with all sorts of stuff like that. And poor kid has to live up there with that name. Because sometimes you have to think about that. How is this kid going to work out in school with that name? Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Behold, the Lord has heard that I am unloved. So the first one didn't work out quite the way she wanted. But this one, yeah, I'm loved now. I know the Lord's heard. He's looked on my affliction. He's looked on this. He said, I, I like Leah. I want her to be loved. So I'm going to give her another son. That's what she's saying. That's not necessarily what's happening. Just because people say that God did this doesn't mean that God did it. Do you have people in your life that are going around saying, you know what the Lord did for me? And they tell you, and you say, dear Lord, he didn't do that. <laughs> he did not do that. Then she conceived again and bore her son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means hearing, hears and obeys or hearing with acceptance. She is hoping that now that he hears that I have had two sons, he will he will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Guess what Levi means? Joined, attached, or adhesion. How would you like to have a name that means joined, attached, or adhesion? That's what she named him. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she stops bearing. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. The first son she names in response to how her husband will probably love her. The second son, she does the same way. The third son, she does the same way. All The first three sons are all, all named based on her relationship or lack thereof between her and her husband. In the fourth son, she changes and she names the son in relationship to God. You see that change? How many of you think that is a good change? How many think God would be pleased with this? This is good. You're not just looking at the relationship to the husband. You are now looking at the relationship to God and she names this one object of praise or praise of the Lord. She, she's leaving him out of it. All right, three sons. He hasn't loved me yet. I don't care about this one. God, you love me. <laughs> I just praise you. And it, he just, it's just her and God at this point. The first three, her focus is on her relationship with Jacob. 
The final one, her focus is on her relationship with God. How God has, uh, how God has, she, she was looking before what God has, has done to make my husband love me. Now she says, I, Father God, thank you. I just appreciate this. So she's growing. That's a good, good direction of growth, don't you think? What do you think the next step would be for, for her, for Leah? Don't you think God will continue to bless her? I mean, if she's changed the relationship, made it better. But the Word of God will tell us this. After this, she stopped bearing. Let's go on and read this. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore children, Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> now, understand the, the wife that he spent most of his time with was Rachel. Not Leah. Obviously, he spent some time with her. But most of the time, he's with Rachel. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He gets mad at her. Remember, there's a few other times in the, in the Bible where the wife is barren. And the husband, how does he respond to the wife? Kindly, gently. This one says, hey, who am I? <laughs> he gets a little mad at her. But uh, Rachel was the dominant one. Of the sisters, she was the dominant one. Leah had a, a better character. Rachel was, a, was on the overbearing side. And we could spend some time, we have spent time on this story before and going over that, but we're not going to get into that right now. Verse 3, so she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees and I also may have children by her. So she says, since I can't get pregnant and my sister is, I'm going to give you my maid. She does this because she is barren. That's, that's, that was her motivation. Her motivation for giving her maidservant to her husband as a wife was because she was barren. She was in competition with her sister. They're competing. Who can have more kids? Who can have more sons? Who's going to have the, the love of the husband? Then she gave him Bilhah, her, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. So now he has three wives. How many know this has not gone better? It's gotten worse. Uh, Jacob at any time could have said, that is not a good idea. Now let me tell you a story. In our history, Abraham had a wife and she didn't have a baby for a long time. But God said, baby would come. And a baby did come. It was a great miracle. Good things happened. We need to stay with God and not go this way. He could have done that, but he didn't. He said, all right. And he went. And Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, he called, she called his name Dan. So because she got pregnant, she says, it is God. How many have ever heard people going around talking about, well, if God wants me to have a baby, I'll get pregnant? No. I've told this story before, but I, everybody's watched MASH? Love the show MASH. And Hawkeye would have some of the most, some of the greatest pearls of wisdom. Of course, he would say it with great sarcasm. But one of the times, you know, he was over there with, uh, I think it was with BJ, and they were talking about it, and then somebody in the, somewhere along the course of the line was pregnant. I don't know who it was, but somebody was pregnant. And Hawkeye says this wonderful statement over to BJ. He says, you know, they know what causes that now. <laughs> yeah, they do. And it's not God. It's not God. When God brought Adam and Eve into the earth, he put them into the garden and he said what? Be fruitful and multiply. He didn't say, I will multiply. He said, you be fruitful and multiply. And he put within the power of men and women the ability to procreate. And you do this without God. How many of y'all know there are people out there having babies right now that have no business having a baby? That God has not said, you know what, I want to bless you with a baby. Because that, I mean, that baby's born into a drug-infested family. Uh, no, only one parent. All these different things are going on. No, that's not God. That's people making a decision. And people constantly make decisions that they blame God for. This is not one of the ones that we should. 
We know what causes that now. Yes, we do. If you don't want to have the results, don't do the cause. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob, a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestling I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. Dan means he that judges, saying that God has judged between her and her sister. Nephtali means obtained by wrestling. I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. Well, I don't know if you're counting. Leah still has four sons, and Rachel has two by the maid. Hmm, I don't know about prevailing. By the by, the way that she's trying to to do this prevailing, this is not it's it's not quite there. So you can see where her focus is. Now she's had the love of her husband, but she gets into this competitive part and it brings in this dominance and it affects her relationship with her husband. In the end, you're going to see at the end, in the beginning, he loved Rachel more than Leah. In the end, where is he buried? He requests to be buried next to Leah, not Rachel. Go back and the rest of the story and find that out. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin and is buried in a different spot than Leah is. And when he dies, he says, bury me in the tomb next to Leah. So her competitiveness, this thing that brought out, drove her husband away from her. He was not as much uh, infatuated with her as he was before. So you can see where her focus is. It's not quite where it ought to be. Put this in your outline. Because of bad doctrine and wrong understanding. Because of the bad doctrine and wrong understanding, the children of Israel lived with tribes named after wrong beliefs. Most of the tribes of Israel are not named after great God-fearing topics. They're named after flesh-ordered behavior. It's not good. But God still took the names. God didn't name the kids. Now, how many children did God want Jacob to have? If you're coming, if you're having a hard time coming up with an answer, it's because God never said. How many did he have? At 12. How many things are based on the Word of God, based on the 12 sons that he had? How many disciples did Jesus pick? 12. Why did he pick them? He matched the tribes of Israel. We've come up with all kinds of things that the 12 means for God, but the reason that there are 12 tribes of Israel is because of what these folks did. Now, we're going to go through here and we're going to take a look at these names yet. Let's go through and find out the rest of them. In chapter 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped burying, now it's been a few years. First off, Rachel didn't have any kids while she had four. If you only looked at a year between each kid, you're looking at four to five years, but it's probably longer than that. That's a lot of years to be buried. She had two kids, and Leah's not having any right now. When Leah saw that she had stopped burying, she took Zilpha, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. Again, Jacob doesn't say, this is a bad idea. And Leah's maid, Zilpha, Zilpha bore a Jacob a son, and Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. Good fortune, a troop, or a seer is what that name means. And Leah's made Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. So I, I think I already gave this to you, but just in case I didn't. Rachel gave her maid because she was barren. Leah gave her maid because she was competing. We got Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means happy. If she had just got her focus right, remember with Jacob or with... Um, with Judah, she just got her focus right. If she just got her focus right, why is it that Leah became barren? If that causes you questions, if you're thinking, wait a minute, she just got, if she really did just get her focus right, we see that the, I mean, the best name out of all the tribes of Israel, there's, there's only a handful of ones that have really good names. Most of them have bad names. But the first one that she gave that had a really good name was 
Judah. First one. And she finally got her thinking right. Why is it that suddenly she became barren? Why do you think that would be? Well, remember the parable of the sower? There are three attacks of the enemy. The first attack when the seed is sown, the first attack that comes is a lack of understanding. It's caused by a lack of understanding and he comes and he steals the seed. The second is tribulation and persecution because of the word exposes a lack of endurance. Tribulation and persecution because of the word. Tribulation and persecution comes because of the word and it exposes a lack of endurance. The third, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it, the word, becomes unfruitful. Those are the three attacks of the enemy. One, you don't understand. He can come in and steal the word away. Two, tribulation and persecution. Because of the word that is growing in you, it exposes a lack of endurance. Because that word is in you and you're going after it, but the persecution comes, you don't endure. Probably Leah is going under this one. She's had some things start to take root. She's starting to go. And the attack comes. No, we can't let her get her relationship with God right. We can't let that be the focus of her. And so tribulation and persecution came. And because of a lack of endurance, she gave up. And she began to blame God for her being barren and so forth. God had nothing to do with it. Verse 14, Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found himself mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away? Look at this. What did she say? That you have taken away my husband. Do you see that? She doesn't say our husband. She says what? My husband. What is in Leah's mind? I am the first wife. I have borne the most sons. He is my husband. Can you see this competition? Can you see this rivalry building between these two? They were sisters before and the word of God says don't marry a sister. Now that wasn't written down for them but it may have been passed down. Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. So how would you like that? I mean, this is, uh, this is not a good situation here at home. And you can see this is very tense. This is not what God has, has desired. Now, this word here, mandrakes, is the Hebrew to diem. It means uh, love plants. All the different things that people have uh, to- to- toyed with it. It means uh, love plants. But there, I, I read this, or got this for you. Many interpretations have, have been given of this word, to diem. And it has been rendered violets, lilies, jasmines, truffles, or mushrooms. See, mushrooms are just no good flowers, the citron, the weight of the authorities in favor of its being regarded as the mandragora officinalis of botanists, a near relative of the nightshades, the apple of Sodom, and the potato plant. It possesses a stimulating and narcotic properties. The fruit of this plant resembles the potato apple in size and is of a pale orange color. It has been called the love apple. The Arabs call it Satan's apple. It still grows near Jerusalem and in other parts of Palestine. So this guy, he goes out and he finds some. He gets all of them, brings them on back. He's got them all and she wants some. So she says, all right, I'll give you, the, the, I'll give you my husband who's, who's most of the time with me, but I'll, he, he's yours tonight. Well, let's go on to verse 17. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now this is their viewpoint of this, they're saying that God listened to her. This whole thing with the mandrake signifies for, for her that God is not doing a good enough job. Have you ever had anything going on in your life where you are determining that God is not doing a good enough job? And I will help the cause along. <laughs> they're both doing this. They both uh, are saying, well, God, you're kind of coming up short here. I had four sons. I'm barren now, so... Look, I'm going to give you some help. And so they offer up the, the maid the maids, uh, that, that, that she has. You don't need to help God alone. We need to have endurance to hang on to what God said is what we should do. 
and to keep on doing it. God listened to Leah. Well, in verse 18, Leah said, God has given me my wages. Does God give people wages? Because I have given my maid to my husband. So what what she's saying is this. Because I went and sacrificed and gave my maidservant to my husband so we could have more kids, God has blessed me and now I can have kids. Oh boy, the things that we come up with. This is not God. This is people saying this. Some people come out of this and they look at, well, this is what God is saying. No, it's not. It's for people. It's their viewpoint of it. She called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Issachar means there, he, there is here reward or wages. Zebulon means dwelling or wished for habitation. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. There may have been other daughters in there. This one is mentioned because she comes into play later on. Because she is attacked by some of the men. And the first two oldest born go after them with a rage. Or I'm sorry, Simeon and Levi go after them with a rage. Reuben uh, did other things to disqualify himself. And now he rebuked them, but uh, that's why Dinah is mentioned. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. So in their viewpoint, they're saying like this, well, you know, Rachel, I mean, Leah's got all those kids and then, you know, you were so faithful to give your husband your maidservant, which I said not to do in the Word of God, but it was okay in this case. (laughs) And so their viewpoint is, well, now they opened up Rachel's womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph. Joseph means may God add or increase. Increase her. May God add or increase her. She called his name Joseph. And the Lord shall add to me another son. So she gave, we got this one, but God is going to increase. God is going to give me more. So she has this son with her sight set on another one. Now the story goes on there for, for a little bit. We're going to jump on down to Genesis 35 and verse 16. After they split, they left the, uh, the homeland over there with his uh, father-in-law and they'd gone on the way and they journeyed from Bethel and when there was, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephra, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had a hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Benoni but his father called him Benjamin. Instead of son of my sorrow, we changed it to Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob sent a pillar, set a pillar on her grave, which is a pillar on, gra- on Rachel's grave to this day. So ben, uh, went from son of my sorrow to Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. It's a good name, isn't it? So we have again, how many sons of Israel? We have 12 sons of Israel. Now, God never said, you'll have 12 sons, I'm going to bless the 12 tribes. But when they had 12 sons, we had 12 tribes, and God said, we will bless these. He worked off of the number that they had. Out of the 12 sons of Israel, how many are significant? Let's go on down them. Reuben, does Reuben become significant? Moderately so. He's a decent-sized tribe, but really doesn't do anything a whole lot. Nothing really comes out of his, his, his place there. He disqualified himself because of his conduct. Simeon disqualified himself because of his conduct. We don't really have hear a whole lot that goes on with the nation of Simeon. It's a moderate-sized tribe. It wasn't a real small tribe. It was a moderately-sized tribe. And then we go over to Levi. Levi also disqualified himself because of some of the things that he had done. But re- the tribe redeemed themselves of the mountain. When Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? Who stood up? The tribe of Levi, the entire tribe of Levi stood up. And so they became the priests. So Levi became one of the significant tribes because they are, that's where the priest comes from. The next one was Judah. Does Judah become significant? It is probably the most significant tribe of the entire 12. David comes out of there. Jesus comes out of there. The leadership, the ruling staff comes out of Judah. That's where it comes from. The sons that she has with, or that, that uh, Israel has with the maidservants, Dan, Nephtali, any significance there? 
The other one, the other maidservant, Gad, Asher, any significance there? None at all. Dan, his claim to fame was they were the first tribe to set up idolatry as their, uh, the, the worship of their tribe. And they uh, allowed some really foreign gods and foreign worship into their, into their uh, tribe. They allowed, of course, Jeroboam's, uh, what is it called, that, uh, the, the golden calf he set up there, one in Dan and one in Beersheba. Dan has nothing significant for the Lord that he ever does. The tribes are very small and even when Dan is dispatched to go out and to conquer their area, they are looked at as being the uh, very uh, more significant, insignificant than the Canaanites that dwell in the land. And so none of those sons became a thing. Which leads us to the question, what would happen if they were never born? Would Israel have been affected in any way? No. No. The, the other sons that Leah had after Judah, did they become significant in any way? Issachar, Zebulun, we know about them for... No. There's, there, there's not a whole lot. They're very small tribes. They don't really do a whole lot. Nothing really comes out of them. But then Rachel gives birth to Joseph. Does Joseph become a significant tribe? He sure does. In fact, Joseph becomes so significant that later on, the tribe is split between Ephraim and Manasseh. And remember the blessing that uh, dad put on, granddad put on them? What a blessing that, that, was, that was, was put on those. The older will serve the younger. That was uh, quite, a, quite a blessing that was, that was there. And Ephraim... When the tribe split and you had the northern tribe of, of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, many times in the word of God, the northern tribe of Israel is called Ephraim. It is referred to very often as Ephraim as the southern group was called Judah. The southern tribe was not made up of just Judah. Benjamin was also put in there as were many from all 12 tribes who migrated there when the northern tribes left worshiping God. So the southern nation represented all 12 tribes, but went by the name of Judah. The northern tribes went by Israel or by Ephraim. So Joseph became significant. Does Benjamin become significant? Only moderately so. The first king came out of Benjamin. That was Saul. But then Saul went the wrong way and was rejected and the ruler, the rulership was pulled out of that tribe. Then they began to defend the homosexuals actions that were going on in the land. Not that they were participating, not that all were participating in that, but they began to defend it. And Benjamin got wiped out. The males of, this, of the tribe were wiped out. And they had to do some things to rejuvenate the tribe and the tribe never became significant after that. So here's what we're getting down to. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, how many have a lasting effect? How many names really became well-known that you could pull out and say, these guys were significant? Are you ready? Judah, Levi, and Joseph, which is three out of 12. Now, hang on to this one. How many disciples does Jesus pick? How many can you name? How many stand out? How many were significant? Peter, James, and John. When you get into the book of Acts, what are the disciples that you hear about? Peter, James, and John. Do you hear about any others? casual mention here and there that somebody might have been present for something. But the only ones that do anything, the only ones that are significant, the only ones that offer leadership are Peter, James, and John. What is neat is that God, Jesus, when he picks the disciples, follows exactly the same pattern that happened with the sons of Joseph. But only three were meaningful. And only three of the twelve, as far as we know in Scripture, ever became meaningful. Were the other sons necessary? Why did they come? If we would have just stayed with three sons, would we, would we have been okay with numbers? Yeah. yeah, we would have been just fine, huh? But 
Of course, it wasn't the first three sons that became significant. It's not necessarily the first three disciples that were picked that became significant either. Peter was not the first one picked, was he? How did Peter get there? His brother. How much do we hear about Andrew? We don't hear much about him, do we? But we hear about Peter. He wasn't the first one picked. Just a nice little correlation that's, that's there. Where do we leave off at? In uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, you can read this when you want to uh, back at home. But thir- verses 13 and 14, I'll read one part of it here for you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. This is speaking about Saul and the tribe. So Benjamin came insignificant and fell off. Judah may not have been the ruling party or the ruling tribe if they had done what they were supposed to do. And we did all that and going through the whole story for this part. The reason that there are 12 sons of Israel, the reason that there are 12 tribes, is simply because of external pressure. Because Leah felt pressure from her sister and Rachel felt pressure from her sister. They did things that caused more sons to be born. There is no purpose of God. There is no command of God. There is nothing that says you will have 12 sons. But they had 12 sons. They had 12 sons because of their misconception of God and the things that He did. External pressure, I put this in your outline, external pressure can move you from what God has commanded you to do. You can feel external pressure. There's a couple of ways, a couple of things that will come upon you to try to move you off of what God has commanded you to do. There's some things that God has, has put in place for you to follow, for you to go in the direction of, and external pressure will come and try and move you off. There is one other way that it comes. Put in your outline this way. So too can inward desires to obtain things. With Lee and Rachel, we see the external pressure of the sister and the internal pressure of, I want to have my husband's love. I need to have more sons. I need to... There's internal pressure and there's outward pressure. Or inward desires and outward pressure. And they both can move you in a wrong direction. Not moving you where God called you to. Not moving you where God told you to go. But are trying to move you. Remember Daniel? We've talked about him. And the uh, uh, test that he went through. The lions, when had Daniel in the lion's den. Remember, the king, I'll just give you the summary, the king was giving consideration to putting Daniel over the entire realm of Babylonia. That's a high position. He's going to be over the whole thing. And the other uh, leaders, satraps and so forth, were jealous of this. They didn't want it. So they said, we've got to knock this guy out. But they couldn't find anything going on in Daniel's life. They couldn't find a single thing in his personal life to tear them down. That's what they always do today. If you've got somebody who would actually be significant in the area of the political spectrum, what do they do? They tear them down. They just throw stuff up there on the wall and see what sticks to see if they can pull them down because they're afraid of them because they will bring God's principles, they will bring godly things. Into, in the last election, we saw that greatly with Herman Cain. Guy who had great ideas, great, wonderful wisdom. I mean, ways to solve problems made sense, was able to talk to the American people and bypass the press. And they did not like that. They were afraid of that. Because the one who did that before him, we all well know, Ronald Reagan. They despised Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan had the ability to speak to the American people and bypass the American press. And Herman Cain came on the scene and did the same thing. I would, how many, I, I still think back to those things. I loved listening to him answer the press. Have a press conference. Oh, it was wonderful. He just took them to lunch. <laughs> oh, he, he beat them up and, they, and was nice about it. Just friendly and nice, just answered stuff. And, oh, he was just wonderful. He's also one of the few politicians that if you asked him a question, he would say yes or no and then expand on it. Most of the time, they don't do that. He's a wonderful man. Uh, I saw some of the things in his life. And so they just decided to get all these accusations and nothing was substantiated. Throw it up against the wall and see what stuck tore apart his family, tore apart his life so much, 
he eventually dropped out because they were afraid of him. They didn't want to see what he would uh, what he would do with America. I was I was disappointed as anything at that because I really enjoyed him. And when he went, went out, of course, we had to go over and find somebody else. But that's what they try and do. We're going to try and tear apart your your uh, your, your character. We're going to try and, and and pull you down in this way. External pressure can move you from what God has commanded you. There are things that God has said, do this, go after this direction, go in this. And and you're going that way, but then all of a sudden these forces come against you to try and stop you from doing it. Or you have inward desires. Now we're going to tie all this up and we can tie this into a whole lot of things. You know, you can tie this into your time. You can tie this into your life. You can tie this into your gift. All the three things that were put up there on Facebook here today. And just well, you can tie it into your money. I'll give you one of these things on your time. How many of you all know that if you dedicate a certain amount of time, like Daniel did, a certain amount of time to, uh, to God, the enemy is going to come after it. They tried to come after his person, and it didn't work. And so they said, we're going to make this rule. And it says in the Word of God that when Daniel knew that the edict was signed, he went into his room as it was his habit, and he prayed to the Lord with the window open, because this is what he always did facing Jerusalem. He always did this. Now, we've talked about this before. Three times a day, he would go before the Lord. He would pray. There is no place in the Word of God that was commanded that, Daniel, you shall go into your room and pray three times a day. It's something that he set up to do, and he would not be moved from it. This is a guy that was high up in the political circles. How many of you all know that the king sometimes at one point along the the process here said, Daniel, I need to meet with you tomorrow at one. Uh, uh, King, that's my prayer time. I can't meet with you at one. I can meet with you before. I can meet with you after, but I can't meet with you at 1 o'clock. What do you mean you can't meet with me at 1 o'clock? Of course you can. I'm the king. You will meet with me at 1 o'clock. Uh, I, I can't do that, king. That's my prayer time. That's the time that I have set aside for God, and I need to be there. So they come up with another time. How about another time he comes over and says, Daniel, I need to be, meet with you at 7 a.m. Uh, uh, king, that's my prayer time. You'd say your prayer time was 1 o'clock. Uh, I know I did, but my prayer time is also 7 o'clock, or whatever time he picked. You mean you can't meet with me at 7? No, King, but I'll meet with you earlier or I'll meet with you later. But I can't meet with you at 7 o'clock. Daniel, I need to meet with you at 6 o'clock tonight. We have some special people coming in, some dignitaries from coming out of town. They're going to be here. I need to meet with you at 6 o'clock. Now, King, I, I, I can't meet with you at 6 o'clock. What do you mean? It's not 7, it's not 1, it's 6. I, I know, King, but that's my prayer time. How many of you don't know this will happen? Somewhere along the course of time, this has happened. And what's Daniel say? No, king, I can't do that. That's my prayer time. I have to. And if he is pressed on it, he would say, look, you know that I operate with great wisdom and that everything you put in my hand is blessed. It's because I honor my God. You do not want me to stop doing this. I will meet with you before. I will meet with you after. And he never one time backed down. Now, he was not always being considered for second in command. He was once down a lowly boat, way down at the bottom. How many of you all know, if you, if you want to win points with the boss... You don't tell him you can't meet with him. But he didn't, he didn't care about that. Somewhere along the line, Daniel, I want to talk about your promotion. How about tomorrow at 1 o'clock? Sorry, King, can't do that. It's my prayer time. Now, see, you'll find this out with a lot of, a lot of things. And, be, and when you set up and say, I will do such and such, there are things that will come against you. If you say every day in the morning at 7 o'clock, I am going to read my chapter. You will have some things that will come up at 7 o'clock that will try and pull you from reading your chapter just simply to get you into a different different mode. If you say Sunday mornings, I'm going to go to church. Have I ever said that? Sunday mornings, I'm going to be in church. And, you know, things come and play with you. Now, most of you, I mean, you guys are here over Sunday morning. I'm not just talking to them. We're talking to other people outside. But I know, you know, when, when I was there, when I went to Rainbow, I had always made it even before that. I went to King's College. And I, Sunday morning, I'm at church. And the King's College had no place around to go to church that was worthwhile going to. I found a place that was further away. I had to get a ride. I had to uh, hitch a ride with somebody every Sunday just to get to church. Something that was worthwhile. No good teaching. They, you know, they, they had an up, upbeat praise time. But that was about all that they had. Other than that, there was really no church in the area that was any good. When I went down to, um, to, to Tulsa, well, there was a good church. It was a mile away. I didn't have a car. But a mile is not far. I can walk that. And so I'd walk to church on Sunday morning. I'd walk on home. I, I was going to get to church. I got on out there. But I had a job. I had a job working at a restaurant. How many know restaurants open up on Sunday? And you, you can see a conflict that's going to come up. We're going to have a conflict. 
they're going to want me to be there and there on Sunday. So when I had the interview process, I said, look, I'll work Friday, I'll work Saturday, I will not work Sunday. Won't have me on Sunday. But you see, if you try and take a position with a boss who's, you know, that they're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, if you try and take that position, I'm not working on the weekend, I'm not working on Sunday or whatever, that's not going to work. You've got to make a situation be win-win. And so I didn't just say I won't work on Sunday. I said, look, you need people on the weekends. That's your busier time. I will work every Friday. I will work every Saturday, but I will not work any Sundays. You'll work every Friday and every Saturday? I'll work every Friday. I'll work every Saturday. But I will not work on Sunday. All right, that's, we can work with that. That's good because everybody's always asking for this Friday off, this Saturday off. I says, no, it's fine. I'll work every Friday. I'll work every Saturday. You can put me on the schedule every Friday, every Saturday. I'll work, but not on Sunday. Now, we had that agreement, but you know... Problems come up. And so you know on Saturday, well, Steve, I know you don't want to work on Sunday. I know you have to be in church and so, but so-and-so called out. We don't have anybody else who can open the store up. Can you open the store up for us on Sunday morning? I says, no. Now, do you, this is external pressure. <laughs> this is external pressure coming in. You want to please the boss? You want to do things? <laughs> no, I can't. I can't open the door. I can't open on Sunday. Uh, I'm done church at noon. I can get home. I can get changed. And I can be here at one if you're really stuck. But I will be at church on Sunday morning. Now, was I going to hell if I skipped church on Sunday morning? No. No. But see, external pressure will come to try and get me to compromise on a thing. Because if you get to compromise one time, all you got to do is one time. Wait, you did it before. We need you a month ago and you said it was okay then. How come it's not okay now? No. So you got to hold your guns to that. But you see, you got to give them something. I gave them Friday. I gave them Saturday. I'm not giving you a Sunday. And we stayed off of that one. And so after a while, testing it out, we got our, our roots established and they understood. Okay, that's how it is. Now I left there. I came on up over here. I worked at a clothing store. You know, the clothing stores are open on Sunday. And I told them, I'll work Friday. I'll work Saturday. I won't work Sunday. We established that. I was real good on it at this point. I had a couple of years of experience on it and uh, we stayed with it. And we did. Now I got a job after that, to which the job they were it was a Christian-owned company. They didn't work on Sunday. The places I delivered to, they didn't want to see us on Sunday. I had no pressure. There was no external pressure to ever work on Sunday at Kelsey's Horse Ranch. There's there's nothing. Never faced that at all. I had a job after that that I worked for a car dealership. Car dealerships are open Monday through Saturday. They are not open on Sunday. It is an unwritten law that some, the car dealerships will not open on Sunday because if one of them opens, then some of them can lose money. So they all close on Sundays. Not because they're religious, not because they think Sunday is a holy day, not because the guys are in church. <laughs> it's not that it. The only reason is is because if no one else is working, no one's losing money. Money is their motivator. But we didn't have any problem with that either. Now some folks are in a, in a job where that, that arrangement won't work. And that's fine. If you're working in the healthcare in, in industries and stuff like that, you don't always have that, that choice. Well, and I understand that. The places I did, I, I didn't have that problem. But there are going to be some things you need to take a stand on as far as your time. And you need to say, this is the time for God. This is the time I've dedicated for God. I will not let that be moved in on. And Daniel did that and didn't let that his time be moved in on. Understand, external pressure is going to come and try and get you to change all those things and to move. Don't move. You just say, well, it's just one time. It, I, what's going to happen? You miss church one time, you get the tape, big deal. There, there's, there's more going on with it. And Daniel understood it. And when Daniel stood up to that, the biggest revelation on end time events ever given to man was given to him. And either that year or that night in the lion's den, one or the other. But the Word of God tells us it was in the same year. External pressure can move you from what God has commanded you and so too can inward desires. Now understand, not all inward desires are bad desires. Jeroboam had an inward desire to see something different in the kingdom of God. And that inward desire was used for him to, to take over the throne. God gave him the throne, but then he eventually turned and, and became something uh, else. Uh, Jeroboam came from one of the significant tribes. Daniel and his three buddies, guess what tribe? Do you know what tribe they came from? The Word of God tells us right in the Bible. Judah. Elijah, anybody know where he came from? The Bible doesn't specifically say, but history tells us that he either came from Gad, Judah, or Levi. Came from one of those. Elisha, do you know what tribe he came from? 
No, nobody does. We have no idea where he came from. Came from somewhere. Inward desires are not always bad. Sometimes you will have an inward desire for something good or something godly, and that inward desire will get you to move out from where God wants you to be. Don't let it happen. If God has said, do this, then do it. If God has given you a gift, use that gift. If God has given you an opportunity to serve, stay in that area. Don't let external pressure or inward pressure move you. I put in your outline, external pressure can only be affected if there is an inward desire to exploit. External pressure can only be effective if there is an inward desire to exploit. Just because there's external pressure doesn't mean you give in to it. There's got to be something in you that you want. The only reason that I would have given in and, and oh, yeah, I'll go ahead and work on that is I would have gotten some overtime. There would have been an inward desire. It had to be something there to exploit in order for that to, to be effective. Our tendency, I, put, I think I put this in your outline too. Our tendency is to judge the validity of our actions by the outcome that we see. How many of y'all know that? This is exactly what these women were doing in Israel's family. They judged, they judged the validity of their actions. I gave my maid, so forth. The validity of their actions by the outcome that they saw. Well, I got a son, so it must have been God. It was not God. God is not in that. Our tendency is to judge the validity of our actions by the outcome that we see. But get this. God judges our actions by the outcome we never attain. I hope you take that home and meditate on that for a while. Because that'll, that'll set you free on some things. We judge our actions or the validity of our actions by the outcome that we see. If I got a raise at this job, if my car is working, if my house is doing well, if my kids are this way, we look at the outcome that we see and we judge, we look back and say, I guess I must have done okay because this worked out. But God doesn't do that. God looks at our actions. He judges our actions by the outcome that we never attain. Saul never attained his outcome. But how often does he want to judge his actions by what he did do or what he did get? God judges our actions by the outcome we never attain. Now, it's bringing us on back to where we're, we're going with this. What in the Word of God does God entrust to people on a low level to see if He can trust them? There is something the Word of God very specifically says, this is what I give you to test you on a low level to see if I can trust you. It is not our time. It is not... Our life, it is not our gift. Turn over to Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? God's saying this. The lowest level of things I can trust you with is money. That is the least valuable thing to me is money. I hold the least amount of value to that because I got plenty. I pave streets with gold. I make gates out of solid pearl. Imagine that getting a gate out of a pearl. That means you carve away all the other pearl. I just like to pick his trash. He's got all the cornerstones of the city founded with gemstones. That's a foundation block. He doesn't need money. Money to him is just, it's, it's low level. I'll throw money at you and see what you do with it. Because if you're not faithful with money, I can't trust you with what's really valuable. I can't do that. We have people in the body of Christ who are saying, Oh God, trust me. That, oh God, give me a gift. Oh God, let me put me in ministry here. Oh God, let me do these kind of things over here. And God says, I've given you the lowest valuable stuff I can give you. And what have you done with it? You haven't done, you haven't done what I said to do with the money. Remember the rich young ruler? 
He wanted to be entrusted with more. And God says, all right, let's see about that. How about messing with your money? Oh, no, no, don't mess with my money. Don't mess with my money. That's, oh, that's, that's my money. What God has done for us is he has given us, and he's given everybody. How many of y'all know righteous and unrighteous people get a paycheck? Righteous and unrighteous people have a budget or money that comes in on a monthly basis and money that goes out on a monthly basis. Whether you are saved or unsaved, it makes no difference. You have money coming in. But God says, I'm looking at that money you have coming in and I'm going to see what you do with it. If you're faithful with it, then you can probably be faithful with more stuff. And I'll trust you with stuff that I count as valuable. And he'll wait and he'll watch. See how faithful you are with that. So what God does is he's, we, we're given our, our paycheck and he says 10% of that is a tithe. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to keep some of it. I'm going to give you 5% of it and I'm going to keep 5%. And then I'm going to keep the, the rest of the 95. What have we told God? Well, you may trust me with something, but I'm not necessarily going to do what you said to do with it. Hmm. I see. Now, understand this. If you are not faithful with the tithe, God cannot ask you to give an offering. You haven't been faithful with the tithe. He can't give you, ask you to give an offering. He can't ask you to step in the area of alms. can't do it because you haven't been faithful in the tithe. You've got to be, first off, faithful with the tithe. So we're going to be talking about that. What are the word, where do we get this in the Word of God? What kind of things are, are we supposed to do with this? Should I still be tithing? Uh, all these, these kind of things. What should we do with the tithe? What kind of... Uh, uh, some people tithe and they have strings attached to it. We're going to be looking at all those kind of things that go on because we want God to trust us with stuff. I want God to, I want God to say, God, work with me. Give me something. I'll do, I'll do good for you. And God says, I'm looking at things that you're doing and, well, you know, we're not seeing... I'm seeing external pressure. See, when money comes to us, we have external pressure. People telling us, you don't need to tithe anymore. You shouldn't give a... What do you mean? You, you give money away? And then we have internal pressure or internal desires. Well, you know, if I give that tithe, I can't go out and buy that. I really want that. Tell you what, I'm going to get that this month and next month I'm going to start tithing. All right? And the next month, what happens? My internal desires find something else to lock on. Oh, I got... Ooh. All right, well, just this one more thing and then next month... And we're being tossed about because of our external pressure and our internal desires. And we're not being faithful on the lowest level that God will trust with us. And we wonder, why is it I don't know where my gift is? Why is it that God hasn't entrusted me to minister to people? Why is it that these things aren't going? It's real clear. Well, I don't make enough to tithe. I I don't make enough money. I mean, I hardly make anything at all seems to me that there was an incident where Jesus was standing, standing at the back of the church counting the money the people were throwing in. And he came up and saw what's one widow woman put in two mites, which is a very small offering. Not a whole lot there. And he said, you know what? She gave more than all the rest of them because she gave out of her poverty and they gave out of their surplus. No matter how little you have, God expects us to give. I love what Brother Keith Moore was talking about when he was on this story. He says, you notice that Jesus does not go up there and says, look, look, I appreciate that you gave this, but here, take this back. You don't, you're too poor. You don't need to give anything. Let other people take care of it. He doesn't do that. He says, no, you need to give it. That's good. Yeah. Other people should be doing this too. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't go back there and, and, and tell her not to give it. Sometimes we get the idea that, well, I don't have a whole lot, so therefore people ought to give to me. That's not God's viewpoint. God's viewpoint is, if you have something... You should give something. Might be a little bit. That's all right. That's all right. God has entrusted something with you. And so we're going to look at the scriptures to help us out with this because what happens, how many of y'all know we have all been in these situations where if you need to make, we're just going to throw out a number to you, if you need to make $1,000 a month just to pay your bills and you are making 950 there's a problem. God, how can I tithe? I'm... Look Look at what's going on. Look at what's going on. I, I don't know how I can die. We're going to be looking at all these different situations. Does God say, you know what? Until we get your income over your expenses, 
you're okay. No, God doesn't do that. We're going to find out why. We're going to look in the Word of God. Because your opinion on it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> My opinion on it, it don't matter. What does the Word of God have to say? Because if we want God to take us on in life, we have got to be faithful with the money. And if you sit here and say, but I've been faithful. I've been tithing all my life and I haven't seen. We're going to get into that too. We're going to look into all those matters because what we do with our money influences us. It hurts us. It affects us. But you can apply this to all kinds of areas, not just money. There is external pressure right now working on you. There is internal desires working on you. Some of those internal desires you have identified as good, but do not follow them if they take you out of doing what God has put you there to do. Don't do it. It's wrong. You've you got to show yourself, God, I will not be moved by internal or external forces. I will do what you have said to do. You get yourself to that place, you are positioning yourself to be blessed by God. Blessed by God. But don't give in to the pressure. It's there for everybody. Did Elijah face external pressure? Did he face some internal desires? He's, we have it right in his, his life. He tells us those things he, he faced. And it messed with him. He got back on track, but it did mess with him. Guy as powerful as Elijah. If you don't think that you can be affected by these things, you are wrong. You can be. But you've got to get yourself to a place where, no, I will resist those things. I will not go after those things. Internal pressure or external pressure, internal desires. These are the things that are going to come after you. These are the things that are going to try and get you to move off what you're going to do. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to identify the forces that come against us. It's so easy for us to fall into the place like these two women did, to look at all the things that are going on around us and judge that whether they are by God or not by God, and we judge wrongly. We attribute things to you that you didn't do. We don't see that your hand was not in some things that we thought it was. We need to operate in great wisdom with these things. And I thank you that your word helps us to do that. And that you help us to identify external pressure so that when it comes, we're ready to face it and we won't budge. We're ready to deal with internal desires because when they come up, we won't let them take us outside. We thank you, Father, for the help that you give us in these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we go, we have our praise reports. If you didn't get your praise report in, you can bring it on up, give it to an usher. Get it on up here. We got one right behind you there. And another one. And uh, this, this, this does not disrupt God by us at the last minute handing stuff in. You kidding? God said, yeah, come on, get them in there. Oh, it's a prayer request? All right. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that. We won't get that over there. I was thinking about buying lunch on Tuesday. My boss said, oh, by the way, I ordered lunch for you today. <laughs> he knows our every thought. That's awesome. Um, Nicole said, the devil is trying his best to put me and my family down, but the word, is, the word is battling for us and blessing us abundantly each day. God continues to lift me up in every area, and the blessings are endless. Amen. Um, Vanessa says, God moved to resolve a neg negative situation at work this week. Is that what we were talking about? Yay! Mm -hmm. Down to how many? Oh, okay, okay. Um, this one I've been waiting to hear. <laughs> this is from Matt. He says, God blessed me with a great condo and a great location, and I moved in on Friday. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> this is from Pastor House Steve. House owner. What's that? House owner. Yeah. Um, Pastor Steve says, uh, he's thankful for some great, inspiring messages and conversations with Brother Joe McGee. We had a good time with him. Now, I'm not, she's not here today, so I'm not sure what happened with this one. But Deetra says she has full recovery from a car accident that happened on Saturday. Ethel so, brought it. Oh, Ethel brought it? Oh, okay. Well, praise God for that. I'll do this one later. Um, Jolly said uh, his dad has overcome a swallowing difficulty and is okay. And he says, overtime roster is now open at my job after a two- to three-month freeze, which is hey. great. So now we can take advantage of overtime. what Brother Joe was talking about, overtime. Um, Mercy, my, sis my junior sister at a federal job offering 
and posting all in one day as a healthcare specialist. Praise God. Yeah. I'll do that one last. <clears throat> Daryl says, um, is that NAS? I don't get me what that says. Oh. <laughs> is that you? Did you go to work with Daryl? You and Sharon? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, Daryl said, God, I couldn't read what he wrote there. It says, Naz and Sharon has come come to work and blessed us with free help for a day. So that's great. Oh. <laughs> the Jacobs got an unexpected check in the mail. Praise God. <laughs> like those. <laughs> um, Ray says, I was asked by one of the managers, how long have you been a supervisor? Because I asked a question affecting how I allocated personnel. I have prayed for wisdom on my job in just over one month. He's been there. So praise God for that. Um, this one was from Annie Lamar. It said, this past week we got to celebrate Mom's life and legacy, and through her funeral, minister to unsaved friends and family. Amen. Praise yeah, God. <laughs> this was from mine. Um, I got a new vision of what it means to be grandparents um, from the teachings from Brother Joe. You know, a lot of times we don't we – don't, um, I don't know. It's like we all love the thought of grandparents. I mean, I loved my grandparents when I was growing up, but to see what God says about grandparents and how we're to pass down those things and how he expects us to teach the next generation and the next generation and provide for them. It's given me a new vision about that. But then also in just talking with Brother Joe, um, a new uh, thankfulness and gratefulness for our church family. You know, Brother Joe just spoke, and we've pastors shared this before, every guest minister that we come in comments about this church and about the love that you guys have for one another he was absolutely blown away at the fact that you guys will stay after church and talk and talk and talk and talk and um he says you know you don't see that in a lot of other churches everybody just kind of you know puts on a smiley face hey good to see you and then leaves afterwards but he kept reiterating while he was here that this is a family and you know that's what the bible says we are the family of god and so i'm just real thankful for our church 